Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Welcome back, guys. Um, it's it's a privilege to be here with you again and to be a part of this uh, Peter teaching team. I just wanted to briefly, as we dive into the further study of First Peter here, I wanted to note um, just kind of this, I I wanted to highlight some things that Jesse shared last week uh, because they are going to be pertinent, um, or that Jesse shared last episode because they're going to be pertinent as we move into the body of of Peter's letter here. Uh, and the first is, is that Peter is writing to a group of people that are identified as elect exiles. These are, um, this idea of election, as Jesse shared, is people who have been chosen by God to be adopted as children of God Yet they still carry in the context of this letter that title of exile. Um, they are away both from their people in many ways as a part of this dispersion, um, but also they're away from this sense of promise. Many of them, having believed in Jesus, find themselves disenfranchised and cast out and facing many types of suffering because of that faith in Jesus. And as a result, um, Peter identifies them as exiles. So the first thing to note here is is Peter. First Peter is the first of of Peter's letters to this group, um, and for our purposes, we are going to turn our attention now to the body of the letter. Um, Peter has written his introduction. He he has addressed his letter, if you will, and now turns to the the introduction where Peter is going to begin to say what Peter is even writing to say. Um, he's writing a letter, remember. And so when you write a letter, you have a message that you want to communicate to the people that you are writing to. And so Peter introduces two main ideas in this section. The first is that the hope that we have and that we experience in Jesus um, as those elect by God, that hope causes us to endure despite trials and despite trying circumstances in our lives. And often those trials and circumstances because of our faith in Christ. This is exceptionally striking as Peter writes to the group again that he has identified as exiled. And so with this status of exiles in mind, it brings to weight Peter's second point, which is that the suffering and trials we endure have a purpose, will be used by God, and and ultimately result in praise. Again, Peter's original audience was moderately acquainted with suffering. Like they they had done some of it already. 
Um, many of them, again, dispersed from their homes and homelands, many away from their families. Uh, and so Peter begins his opening section with these words. We're going to be starting in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Peter opens by discussing the hope that we have. He describes this hope as a living hope. And, and a hope that functions and persists and, and lives on despite those, those trials. Peter reinforces this notion of a living hope by noting that our hope is living because the one we have placed our hope in is living. We have to remember, Peter was an eyewitness to the risen Savior. He saw it with his own two eyes. John tells us in his gospel, uh, in John chapter 20, there's the pickled page flip. John chapter 20, starting uh, in verse 2, John tells us in his gospel, So she, that is Mary, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. From this moment in the, in the gospel, they, they go on to share this news with the rest of the, the apostles, and, and later Jesus appears to them in the closed room. And since that moment, where, G where the risen Jesus appears to Peter, rose and appears to Peter and the other apostles. Since that moment, until the time of Peter writing his letters, Peter has come to appreciate and understand something more about the resurrection. When Jesus rose and Peter was there to see an empty tomb, he knew now, looking back, that, that it proves that his Savior lived. In the time in between, he has come to understand the significance that our Savior is alive. Our hope is living. If our Savior is living, then so is our hope. So God, in his mercy, Peter says, causes us to be born again into this hope through faith in Christ. If we put our faith in a living Savior, the hope we have as a result is a living hope. Praise God that our hope is living because dead hope isn't hope at all. Another name for dead hope is a letdown. 
Peter describes the nature of our hope as well as the causal agent of it. But, but, but what is this hope? What does that hope look like? If, you know, if Jesus is living, what does the hope look like? And when Peter describes that hope, he describes it as an inheritance. This word inheritance here connects our hope, again, back to his words about us being born again as sons and daughters receiving an inheritance through faith. The idea of an inheritance is also tied to an Old Testament idea related to the promise of God, namely in the way of the kingdom, which Peter introduces in due time. Peter's audience, however, is living in circumstances that in many ways seem so far away from that inheritance. They're exiled, they're scattered in the dispersion. In believing in Jesus, they likely feel the pressures from the culture around them, but and they think much like our hope is living, Peter says, the inheritance that they have as children of God by way of faith in a risen Savior, in a living Savior, Peter says that that hope, even though the things of this world are going are gonna to be destroyed and are, and are going to perish and are going to be ruined, and they won't last. He says that that inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In short, it is secure. And Peter says it is secure because it is being kept in heaven. And it is being kept in heaven specifically by a merciful and a powerful God. It is secure. It is assured. That is living hope. If they had a hope in in a thing that was, well, we're going to take a chance and it's a half bet, that's not that's not assurance. That's not living hope. That again, that's a letdown. The one who rose and gives us hope is also the one who secures that inheritance. Make sure it's kept and ready. Not only it, but Peter says we as ones who have put our faith in Jesus are being guarded ourselves through faith. Our faith actively guards us. The Apostle Paul talks about this as the sealing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In faith, Jesus saves us. We are born again. We receive an inheritance and a living hope. And this faith and the hope we experience as a result will one day be fully realized. It's still coming. It is not realized yet. We, we look forward to this. That's why it's hope. Hope has a way of doing that. It causes us to look out on the horizon on the day for the day that it's going to arrive. Peter again here calls, calls our hope living. It is now and it will be full one day in the future in the coming kingdom. And so as a result, if we have this living hope in this life and the one to come, as we dwell on that living hope, we would ask ourselves, what is our response? Like, when I think of the living hope, what should my response be? And Peter continues to describe this response. He continues in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says the way we respond to this living hope is in rejoicing. We rejoice. And we may be tempted, he he notes here, we may be tempted to look at our circumstances like many of his recipients in that day and say, man, I'm glad I have this living hope, but like things are bad. Things are not good. (laughs) And Peter says something kind of so simple. He says, your trials grieve you for a little while. They're not going to last forever. That doesn't mean they're not awful, but they are for now. This is, this is in striking contrast to our hope. Our trials will grieve us for a little while, but our hope lasts forever. And so we, we rejoice knowing that our trials have an end date, but our hope does not. We also rejoice because we can trust our trials are necessary. God does not waste them. Peter has established in his in his letter so far, again, like Jesse said, it, it can be a tough read. It's chock full of, of really deep theological claims. Um, the, the sentence structuring can be sometimes hard to wade through. Like Peter knew how to use some commas, if you know what I'm saying. But as Peter has established, God is merciful to save us. And powerful to keep us and our inheritance. So then the trials we face, if if those things are true, if God is merciful and powerful, yet we face trials, the logical conclusion that Peter arrives at is that those trials are necessary. They have a purpose. God is not going to let them go to waste. That does not always mean that we will have full understanding of of what the end goal was. Like, what was all the things that I went through that for? Peter doesn't say, yeah, you know, God is going to connect all the dots for you in the, in the final moments. Trials and suffering have a purpose. And the purpose then, in general, as Peter describes it, he says that our faith may be proven to be genuine. You see, trials and suffering separate cheap, surface-level affirmation from lasting, enduring faith in a living Savior. Because it's, it is incredibly easy. It is incredibly easy. And, and I'm not downplaying this. We should absolutely cling to Jesus in the good moments. But it's incredibly easy to say, yes, I believe in Jesus when everything is making sense in our brain and our trials are minimal and, and life is kind of going okay. It's very simple. But it's when the trials start and the suffering begins to build and we have more and more questions. And sometimes we don't know where those questions are leading us. That that is when true, tested, genuine faith can begin to shine. It's enduring faith in a living Savior. And to highlight this idea of enduring faith that proves to be true through trial. 
he, Peter sets up this analogy and begins, he introduces this analogy of, of gold being refined. When you take gold, you, you must refine it. You, you must perfect it. Um, to make it of value to be used, you must burn away the dross. It's a process. It, it takes time. It takes energy. It takes commitment to do this thing to gold. Yet, Peter notes, we have value in it. We do it. Well, here's the, here's the trick. As we, as we talk about an inheritance and we talk about a treasure and we talk about the things that last, we, we read those things at the early part of this introduction, uh, introduction to his ideas, and we take those and we superimpose them over this analogy about gold. And, and even, if you, even if you purified and, and smelted down the most pure gold a person can get through this refining process, here's the, here's the deal. That, that gold will perish. It will not last. You cannot take it with you. And yet, we still see the value of refining this metal, testing this metal to make it better. Peter says, our, our faith is of so much more value than gold. It will last longer than gold. And so we ought to rejoice in the process that refines our faith. More so than we value the process that refines gold. I think sometimes we, we hear this idea of our faith being tested or this idea of a test. And, and we hear this idea of God either testing or allowing our faith to be tested. And we get frustrated with that. We hear it and we go, well, what? I don't, I don't want God to test me. And I think part of this is due to a negative view of tests and testing in our culture. Tests are often viewed as some sort of barrier to, to keep you from moving on, or, or it, it's a thing that you must pass in order to like, earn something that if you don't, you will be punished for it. But, but in the Bible, especially as we look at the Old Testament, in the moments where God presents tests to his people time and time again, in Abraham, in Isaac, in Moses, Solomon, David, all, all of these people received various tests from the Lord. And what we learn is that tests, especially tests from God, are an opportunity to display our growth. And in Peter's context, in, in his letter to this group of dispersed Christians, it is an opportunity to display the genuineness of their faith. It pushes you to the next phase of things. This testing is not done by an angry God who wants us to fail. Peter has already, in, in just a few short verses here, described this God. He's merciful. He's a God of mercy. It comes from a God who very much wants us to pass the test. But knows that the test is necessary to further refine a very valuable faith. The purpose of this test and testing and this trial is a stronger faith. 
that results in praise and glory and honor to God when that hope is fully realized when Jesus comes back. It can still be hard to remember and realize that sometimes. It, it can be hard to remember. Oh, man, I can rejoice. Notice Peter doesn't say it, it's going to be easy. You're going to face these trials to prove the genuineness of your faith, faith and refine it and, and come out on the other side with a stronger faith. He doesn't say that process is going to be cake. He doesn't say it's going to be easy, but he says it's worth it. Because when Jesus is revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he says, it'll all be worth it. Much like I'm sure Peter experienced those feelings when Jesus appeared to him from the grave, he, he probably had moments where he thought back onto those three years following Jesus. He had left everything. And when Jesus died, I, I, I believe that Peter had a moment where he's like, did, did I mess up? Did I bet on the wrong man? And when Jesus was revealed, Peter realized it was all worth it. Jesus is going to appear again. But that's later. What about now? Peter continues in verse 8. He says, Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's audience, like ourselves, many of them had never seen Jesus face to face. And Peter says, you have not seen him, yet you love Jesus. That's faith. We too do not currently see Jesus here now. We may not even currently see how Jesus is working, yet we believe and rejoice in Jesus. That's faith. Our hope is one day we will see him. He will be revealed. Our hope and faith will be realized. Our joy will be complete. But until then, it can be difficult to express that joy. It is, in many ways, as Peter calls it, inexpressible, because we have no idea how or when or what the full realization of that hope resulting in joy will be like. We can think about it. We can try to wrap our brains around what that day will be like, but we don't know. It is inexpressible. What we do know is that joy, that is that, that resulting joy, the culmination of that hope, it will be the outcome of our faith, the final realization of our salvation. But again, the tension that Peter holds in his letter is that despite that hope, that despite the fact that we look forward to this full realization, we wait. There is this tension with hope. And so now, Peter transitions to an example of God's faithfulness in the past to highlight the worthwhileness. I don't know if that's a word, but the worthwhile, I'm going to say it is now, the worthwhileness of this waiting. 
he turns to the prophets of old who so many knew so well when he says in verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets, moved by the Holy Spirit, knew some of God's plan for salvation. As God revealed to them the things that God wanted them to write and to put to the people of Israel, they began to learn that God had a plan. God was going to save his people. And they searched and, and, and they wanted to know how God was going to do this thing. When would this plan take place? When would this hope that they had heard about be realized? They knew of a suffering Savior, but they had never seen him. They even realized in time that, that the sufferings that they were enduring as, as prophets and people of God in, in history past, and boy did some of those Old Testament people suffer. <laughs> they understood that it was necessary, that it was part of a much bigger plan. And now, Peter's audience and ourselves today, we sit on the other side of Jesus. We look back on the thing that they looked forward to. They longed to know the details that we have in this book. Their faith in, in a God and in a God who would save, they didn't know how. Peter's going to get to that in his letters, by the way. This, these people, faith of old. But Peter's audience and, and us today, we look back on the thing that these prophets looked forward to. We have heard the living hope, the unfading inheritance, the salvation of our souls from those moved by the Holy Spirit. Jesus has come. He died for our sins and rose to give us hope. And the prophets wanted to know about that. And Peter's audience, like us now, we wait now on Jesus once more, waiting for our hope again. Peter seems to be highlighting that, that the same God who was faithful to these prophets in times past as they looked forward to the coming Jesus, that God makes the wait worthwhile because we have assurance in the hope being alive. Peter says he has this weird comment in here that angels long to look into and understand these things. <laughs> They, they don't understand them, by the way, because they, they don't have this the same redeeming faith and living hope and relationship with God. They don't have that as humans do. God's mercy 
for those who believe, his power to preserve those who believe, is something that angels, they don't, they don't know it. They know about it, but they haven't experienced that. And so we have this robust and saving relationship in our risen Savior, our living hope. And we, and we are waiting for him. Much like the prophets of old looked forward and waited on this plan, we too look forward and wait with eager expectation and hope for the day that Jesus comes back. But while we wait for that hope, Peter acknowledges a very hard truth that we face many trials. And in facing many trials, we find our faith made stronger, our hope made more sure, and our joy filled with more glory. Thank you, guys. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusky Bible. To stay up to date with all things parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.